Again, our text is 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. That's found on page 299 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Here now again, the living, inspired, inerrant word of our God given for you this morning. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms, carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord again, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to the arms of his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Amen. We have before us here, I hope you can already sense an incredible passage. An incredible uh, passage. This is actually only one of three recorded resurrection stories in the Old Testament. One of three. Uh, The other two come in Elisha's ministry, which follow uh, this text. Uh, That fact alone... Right should uh, mean that we should give this text some special and devoted attention. But it is not only impactful for that reason, it's also impactful because it's a deeply uh, personal, deeply emotional text. It takes us through great tragedy, and it also takes us into the, the inexpressible joy of a miraculous answer to prayer. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a powerful text because it addresses those emotions, both the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. We also see something here of God's character. We see something about who God is, what God is like. We see particularly that he has concern, he has care for those who society say have no value and no worth. God is a God who sees the one who we would least expect him to see. God is a God who cares for one who we would least expect God to care for. We also see the power of prayer. We've just sung together that God is a prayer hearing, a prayer answering God. And we're going to see that in a wonderful way in this text this morning. 
This is also a passage about the word of God. If that were not enough, this is a passage about the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God's word. This is a passage which vindicates God's word as something you can put your trust in. It points to the surety of God's promises. And it calls us to confess as with the widow. And I hope by the end of this sermon, you're saying with her, Lord, your word is truth. The author of Kings wants you to know that God's word is battle tested. And it stands the test. The author of Kings wants you to know that God himself is battle tested and he stands the test. He is faithful. He has always come through. He will always come through. Finally, in following the arc of redemptive history, right, we see here a resurrection story. And naturally, that takes us as Scripture moves from the Old Testament to the New. It naturally takes us to the culminating resurrection story of Scripture, which is this, that Christ came, that Christ died, and that Christ rose again. All that is packed into this text this morning. Are you ready? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that it reveals your character. We thank you that it convicts us and encourages us. It lifts us up to you that we may behold you in all your glory. Father, I pray that you would unveil our eyes, uncloud our minds, and move, Lord, us to a posture of worship and adoration and attentiveness to your word. Lord, may we hear all that you have to say. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. For the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, because we're just, uh, we're not doing a sermon series on 1 Kings, obviously, we're just jumping into this passage. We're kind of parachuting in. I want to give you, as we start out here, just a little bit of the historical context to to help us get oriented to where we are in the text and and what's happening. And I'll try to keep this brief, but it's really important to help us understand uh, the meaning of the text. Now, this story comes to us in the middle of what has been called the Elijah narratives, the Elijah narratives. Uh, The Elijah narratives span from Elijah chapter 17 to, uh, I'm sorry, from, from 1 Kings chapter 17 to 1 Kings chapter 19. Okay, so this story comes right in uh, the middle of that. And really, the, the first Kings is, is kind of moving with momentum towards an event that happens in the midst of those Elijah narratives. And that's found in first Kings 18, which is Elijah's confrontation, right? Cosmic showdown, right? Between uh, Elijah and God and the prophets of Baal and Baal himself. Most of 1 Kings is really moving us towards that moment. And so these are particularly important texts really for the whole of 1 Kings. In reality, you can understand the attitude and theme of 1 Kings by understanding uh, these Elijah narratives. Now, 1 Kings, if you know your history well, right, you know that 1 Kings starts out with Solomon's reign, right? This is a time of great prosperity and, and peace. The people of Israel, right, are worshiping the Lord. The temple has been built uh, you think everything is going well, right? Well, we only get about five chapters into First Kings when we realize uh, that's not going to last very long, right? The wisest man that ever lived 
wonder what that says about us. But the wisest man that ever lived still fell into idolatry, right? Solomon's sin of idolatry ends up, of course, uh, dividing the whole of the kingdom so that the once united people who are worshiping together in Jerusalem now become two really separate entities uh, that are at conflict with one another. This is what sin does. It puts us at odds with one another. It puts us at odds with other believers even. And, and this idolatry that begins with Solomon, it just kind of continues to build. It's very cyclical throughout uh, the book of First Kings. You can almost imagine, right, that the people of Israel are in a kind of tailspin of destruction and idolatry. And this reaches its height with a king called Jeroboam. And what Jeroboam does is, in an effort really to assume power for himself, is he establishes two different places of worship. And guess what he does? He builds golden calves. Sound familiar? Exodus? We've been here before. Jeroboam builds a golden calf at Bethel, and he builds a golden calf at Dan. And that event becomes kind of the preeminent sin that every other king after him is kind of measured by. Either the king walked in the ways of the Lord and in the ways of his father, David, or the king, wicked king, walked in the way of Jeroboam. So this sin kind of becomes the the paradigmatic sin for the rest of the book. As we move closer to these Elijah narratives in chapter uh, 16, we're then introduced to Ahab and Jezebel. And things get ramped up even more. Because what Ahab and Jezebel try to do is basically institute Baal worship as kind of the national religion. So they start killing God's prophets, basically outlawing worship of Yahweh, and begin instituting a worship of Baal. And it's in this context that Elijah then uh, comes to minister. That's not an easy context to minister in, is it? <laughs> right? Elijah is proclaiming and preaching a message that's getting people killed. This is where we find Elijah. Now, Elijah's ministry really has three purposes. Uh, First, to condemn and confront Israel's idolatry. And you're going to see that in this text here. To prove the Lord's superiority over Baal. You're going to see that in our text this morning. And then finally, to exhort the people of Israel to return to God. And you're going to see that in our text as well. That's really the purpose of Elijah's ministry. Now, another thing you need to know about this text and about what the author of Kings is doing, uh, he's employing something called polemical theology. Polemical theology. What is polemical theology? Well, what the authors of 1 Kings are doing in polemical theology is they're taking pagan Canaanite concepts and they're subverting them, transforming them, twisting them, using them to actually proclaim God's superiority, not Baal's. You actually see this throughout Scripture. We see it in Exodus. But let me give you an example here so that you kind of know what I'm talking about. Would you look with me at at the beginning of chapter 17? We notice here that the the Lord commands Elijah to proclaim to Ahab that there will be neither dew nor rain in these years except by my word. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Canaanite pantheon of gods, Baal was the storm god, which means what? What? He's in charge of the rain. So what's the author of First Kings doing here by emphasizing and showing us that, oh, it's actually by God's word, by Yahweh's word, that no rain comes upon the earth. He's saying, you think Baal is powerful? Baal can do nothing compared to the Lord. Baal has no power over the rain. It is the Lord himself by his word that the rain comes 
and falls or does not. That's polemical theology. The author of Kings is writing against the idolatry and worship of Baal. And that's going to show up in our text as well. So I, I want you to be on the lookout for it. Okay, the last thing I want you to notice about the context here, and then we'll jump into the text, is this, that this, our story is, this, is the second account of Elijah's interaction with this widow. So we, when he first meets her in chapter 17, uh, the Lord sets up this wonderful opportunity, right, for her to trust in his provision. Uh, it's a time of drought. She has no food. She basically is preparing their last meal before they're about to die, and, she said, and God sends Elijah, and he says, hey, go ask that widow to make you a meal. How do you think she would have felt about that, right? She's preparing the last meal for them to eat. She literally says, we're going to prepare this meal and then die. And here comes Elijah and says, hey, can you make me some of that? Would you pass me some of that? What was the Lord doing? He's creating an opportunity for her to trust in God's provision for her. But importantly, Right? This was also an opportunity for Elijah to have faith that God was going to provide through somebody he did not expect. And so the Lord does provide. And what he's doing is he's moving both Elijah and he's moving this widow right, to, a, to a, a resounding confession of faith and trust in God's character and God's provision. Because here's the thing, y'all. In this text, God's not just providing bread. He's providing life. There's our context Let's jump in. This story, and it is a story, it's a narrative, it has three sections. Uh, The first section is this, the tragedy and the accusation. And this is in verses 17 and 18. This sets up the conflict of the story. Then we have in the middle, the prayer of faith. And this is the climax of the narrative. And this is in verses 19 through 22. And then finally, we have the gift of new life. And that's the resolution of this narrative, and that's in verses 23 through 24. Now, notice that the text begins here by describing, right, the severity of this illness that, that overtakes uh, the widow's son. We're told that the illness is so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now, that may seem like an uh, odd, well, maybe not these days. Some of us are struggling to breathe. <laughs> that may, at first, though, seem like a, an odd way to describe. Uh, really an illness that results in death. But the the word there, breath, is actually the Hebrew word nefesh, which means soul. Uh, And it gets uh, used again throughout this text to indicate this, that the Lord is not only the Lord of our physical life, but he's actually the one who, who, who speaks our souls into existence. Notice the text says that his illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. And the first thing that we begin with in this story is this, that the widow's only son, the widow's beloved son, has died. Now, what you need to understand is this is this woman's livelihood. She's a widow. She's an outcast on the fringe of society. She has nobody to provide for her. This is her only son who she is banking on being able to grow up and then provide for her in her old age. With her son's death, it's essentially her death. This is her livelihood on the line. You might uh, hear, hear echoes, right, of Naomi and Ruth. I hope you are, right? And notice that the widow's response here to this tragedy, the death of her son, is 
her response is very similar to that of Naomi's, right? Out of this immeasurable grief that she feels, not only has she lost her beloved son, but she has essentially lost her life. Out of that immeasurable grief comes this statement, this accusation in verse 18. Look there with me, would you please? Here's what she says to Elijah. What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? The Hebrew there is a continuation of the question, but the ESV gets it right by translating it into a statement. She's making here an accusation. This is not just an accusation against Elijah. It's an accusation against Elijah's God. Right? Elijah did not physically kill her son. She knows that, but he represents God. He's God's man. And so for Elijah to be in her house, in her, her presence, right, she associates him with the act of God. And what is she saying here? She is accusing God through Elijah of killing her son. And notice here that she believes that God has killed her son because of something that she did. Did you see that? She says, have you come to remind me of my sin, to bring my sin to remembrance? What is she thinking? She's thinking, I have done something to displease this God. And as a result, he has put my son to death. Can you hear the grief in that accusation? Can you hear the desperation? Can you sense the crushing guilt that she would feel as she searches through her past memories? Have I done something to deserve this? Have I done something that would cause this God to treat me this way? Have I so displeased this prophet's God that he would take my only son? Now, what does this accusation teach us about the way that this widow views God? What does she think about God? What does she think about his character? What does she think about Elijah's God? Well, I would submit to you that what I think she's doing is viewing God through the lens of Baal. This widow is in the land of Zarephath. That's in Tyre and Sidon. This is Baal's backyard. She's considered a pagan, a Gentile by the Jews. And so I would submit to you that what she's doing is she's taking her understanding, right, of of Baal, and she's actually applying that to God. Right? In Canaanite mythology, the gods are... Uh, uh, as capricious as the gods of Greek mythology. Have you read, if you've read any Greek mythology, you know what I'm talking about. But, and what I mean by capricious is that they can change on a dime, right? Their attitude can shift in a moment. They are uh, vengeful. Uh, they're just as prone to bouts of anger and wrath as we humans are. And so in the, in the paganism of her Canaanite beliefs, right, there, there's this sense in which there's a huge pressure to appease the gods so that they don't bring calamity Against us. You want the gods to be happy so they don't strike you down. That's the context that this widow is operating out of. Her first thoughts are I've displeased this holy man's God, and because of this, he's brought down calamity on my household. This is where her accusation of God is coming from. It's coming from a misunderstanding of God. And what the author of Kings is doing here is he's setting up a climactic contrast to say, right, the Lord is not like Baal. The Lord does not operate in that way. He is not a God who is capricious. He is not a God who changes his mind in an instant. No, the Lord is not like Baal. 
Baal. But what I find interesting about the way that the, the, the widow here is responding, she might be responding out of paganism, but guess what, believers? Sometimes we respond the same way. Sometimes we respond the same way. I, I so often find it to be true that when we experience great difficulties, trials, or tragic things, when we encounter death, when loved ones are taken from us, when life is bitter with grief and sadness, so often our response mirrors this widow's. We look at God and we say, why? What have I done to deserve this? What have I done that you would bring this upon me? We do the same thing. I don't know what causes us to, to, to look at God in that way. But when we suffer, when we experience difficulty, right, we, we, we look up at God and we view him as this retributive, angry God who simply brings calamity upon us to punish us. I know there are some this morning who can relate to this, right? Sometimes when things are going well, we're kind of like uh, apprehensively positive, right? Because you think in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, this can't go on for that long, right? Surely at some point God is going to throw a ringer and knock me down again. And so I live in this kind of expectation of, okay, things might be good right now, but I'm just waiting for a brick to drop on my head as if God somehow enjoys Right, sadistically enjoys bringing trials upon our lives. And look, we, we, we do this in, in the tragic, but we also do it in the ordinary. And let me give you an example, and hopefully you can benefit from my sanctification here. Okay. <laughs> uh, this week has been full, and I mean full, of ordinary uh, and frustrations of, of everyday uh, life. You know, I am not, uh, Sarah's laughing, I'm not that clumsy of a person. Uh, contrary to what Jack may tell you, I can, in fact, on occasion, hit the tennis ball over the net. <laughs> Generally, I can make my hands and feet uh, do what I want them to do. But this week, it, it seemed like everything I touched or walked past just immediately began to fall apart. It's like you walk in the room, the clock comes down off the wall, you know, suitcase comes open, things go flying. <laughs> right? I, uh, I open the fridge, the inside door came out, and bottles and sauces go flying everywhere. Thursday night, I'm, I'm uh, at the school. I'm walking the cash boxes back to the school office after one of our athletic events. And the cash box pops open and coins go flying everywhere. Now, it's 9 p.m. at night. The lights are off and the floor is gray. So here I am crawling around on my hands and knees trying to pick up all these coins so that the school administration does not charge the athletic director with pinching pennies to supplement his income. And then... Here comes Friday. Uh, my life tends to be running around from one place to the next. Uh, and I'm, I'm coming out of the house hot. I've got six minutes to get to school. I've got Elias in one arm, all my books in the other. And I come out and the front tire is flat. So I get out the jack and start working on the tire. I get it cranked up. I get the spare off. Uh, and, and then the wheel is too low. And so I try to adjust the jack. It comes off, smashes on the ground, breaks the jack. Uh, the, the car is on the ground and I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> what do you think is going through my mind at that moment? <laughs> Lord, what did I do to you to deserve this? What did, I, what, what did I do? Is it because I cut off that person in traffic? Is this because I was late to the prayer meeting? What did I do to deserve this? All right, we've been there. 
And of course, soon after these thoughts, the Holy Spirit shows up, as he always does. And he's like, hey, Nathan, you remember that Bible study on Hebrews that you were teaching just a few weeks ago? Yeah, what about it? You remember chapter 12? You know that part where it says the Lord disciplines those he loves? Do you remember that? What do you think my response to that was? Lord, love me less. Love me less. Listen, we can laugh. Yes, I was being sanctified this week. But God brings trials and difficulties even in the ordinary. Not just talking about the tragic, but also in the ordinary, right? The simple simple everyday frustrations of life. God does that. And our perspective so often to him is, why are you doing this to me? Right? We, we think somehow, we immediately in our mind think God must have something against me that he's bringing these things and these frustrations. And I want to say to you this morning uh, that that is a pagan way to view the way that God operates. Uh, and don't just take my word for it. In, in John chapter 9, John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples, they come across a man who's born lame, right? Or born blind. And the disciples say, right, who sinned? This man or his parents? Is he being punished for his sins or is he being punished for his parents' sins? And what does Jesus say? No, but that the glory of God might be displayed. That is as true for that man as it is for our lives. In the tragic and in the ordinary. God does not bring these things so as to just drive us to a point of despair. He doesn't bring these things to drop a brick down on your head. He brings these things out of his loving discipline, which is a mark of his love to sanctify us unto his glory. And I know, listen, let, we can just all confess, sanctification is often painful. It is. That, and the author of Hebrews says that. For a moment, for a time, it seems painful. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of what? Righteousness. God-likeness. Christ-likeness. Does God bring troubles? Does he bring calamity with Scripture affirms that he does. The land right now that the widow lives in is experiencing a drought. Why? Because of the idolatry of Israel. But even when God brings consequences for sin, it's not just punitive. It's not just to punish you. It's not. It's to sanctify you. It's to shape and fashion you more into his image. The objective is this, right? The point is not the drought. The point is not the flat tire. The point is not that I would just remain in my frustration and my grief. The point is not the loss. The point is this, that God would be glorified as I'm shaped more into his image by being brought to a place of utter dependence upon him. This is what the author of Hebrews uh, intends to tell us. And I know that's hard to believe. I know that's hard to feel, even more so in a situation like this, where we lose someone we love. It's painful. It is. But the Lord has purpose in it. I think for the rest of us, too often we're just fooled into thinking we have so many other options. Prayer is last on the list. We'll go to the Lord eventually. But first, we've got to try it out ourselves. Brothers and sisters, Scripture is clear. God will tolerate no rivals. He wants to be plan A, not plan B or C. The widow here is brought to that place of utter dependence. Did you, see, you notice she has no other option. There's nowhere else where she's able to go. And so the question then becomes, 
Who's going to provide? Is the Lord going to provide for this widow? And again, not bread, but life. She has nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. She's in a place of utter and complete dependence upon the Lord. Sometimes we need to be brought to that place too. But this accusation that she makes, this sets up the conflict of the story by essentially calling upon the Lord to act in accordance with his character, right? Is Baal the Lord of life or is God the Lord of life? This is the conflict of this text. Now, as we come back to the narrative here, I want you to notice something else about the widow's accusation. Okay, she makes it to Elijah and notice that Elijah does not respond to her question. Did you see that? She is addressing him, and although she's accusing God, she is addressing him, and Elijah does not respond to her question directly, right? He doesn't try to provide some sort of eloquent answer about suffering and the sovereignty of God or why this particular event has occurred. He doesn't also blow her off and just say, oh, well, you know, these things happen, you'll be okay. But he doesn't try to come up with some sort of articulate answer. And the widow is expecting an answer, right? If anybody's able to explain the acts of God, it should be the prophet of God. She's expecting that he would have an answer, but he doesn't have an answer, right? If anybody should be able to explain why these tragedies and things are occurring in my life, it should be the pastor, right? He should know. I mean, doesn't the man have a direct line to the man upstairs? Little red phone in the back of his office. He just pulls up and dials says, hey, God, can you explain to me why this happened? You may be asking why such things occur in your life. And I want to say to you uh, that your pastor may not have the answer. It's quite striking to me that when Elijah takes the boy and carries him to the upper room and lays the boy on his own bed and begins to cry out to the Lord in prayer, notice that he essentially repeats the same thing that the widow said. Did you see that? Look. Look at, look at Elijah's prayer. He says, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Elijah sounds as stricken by grief as the woman. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us whether Elijah had developed a close relationship with his widow and her son, but he was living in their home. You notice he says, right, this is, have you brought this calamity even upon the widow with whom I'm, I'm sojourning with? Who's to say that Elijah himself had not developed a close relationship with this young boy who's just lost his life? Sometimes your pastor is not going to have an answer to your question of why. Many times the why is not always revealed in this life. Of course, your pastor should and can offer you biblical truth to say, in God's sovereignty, all things work for your good, though that is beyond our understanding. But sometimes when you want to know why, why has this happened? Your pastor may not be able to provide the answer for you. But what you should expect of your pastor is that he knows where to go in the midst of grief and sorrow. And that he leads you there. What does Elijah do? He says, give me the boy. And he takes him before the throne of God. To pray and to plead and to cry out to the Lord on behalf of the life of this boy. He doesn't try to provide an answer that he doesn't have. He may not know why this tragedy has occurred, but he knows where to take those emotions. He knows where to go. And so we should expect that our pastors would do the same. 
when you inevitably find yourself in the midst of a great trial, which they're sure to come, when you find yourself frustrated even at the circumstances of life, when you're burdened and weighed down by the shame of your sin, I, as, as Elijah here does, call you to call out to the Lord in prayer. That's where you go. There's a right way and a wrong way to express grief and frustration. The right way is to take it to the Lord in prayer. Lay your heart bare. Lay your troubles and concerns before him. This is what Elijah shows us here. This is the, the, really the climax of the narrative. The, the, te- the tension is building as again, we are asking the question, can the Lord provide life here? And Elijah, did you notice the ascension language? He ascends to the upper room. He ascends to the upper room. He lays the boy on his own bed and he begins to plead for the boy's life. Now, these prayers uh, are, are on either side uh, of what is a very uh, strange kind of act. I don't know if you saw that in the text, but verse 21 tells us that as Elijah is praying, he then stretches himself out upon the child three times. Now, I'm sure you're probably wondering, as I was, as I was studying this text, uh, what's going on here, right? Well, what is Elijah doing? This is not exactly what we would expect uh, in a a healing or in a revivification, right? Even from a logistical perspective, just think for a moment with me. If you're trying to get breath back into somebody, you don't really want to lay on top of them, right? I was reminded of, of, of Jeremiah Pitts' sermon a few weeks ago, right, where he, from Mark 7, he talks about Jesus healing uh, the, the deaf and mute man, uh, and Jesus sticks his fingers in his ears, you know, <laughs> it's like, what, what are you doing? You know, and then he, and he spits on his hand and touches the man's tongue, and it's like, that weirds us out, you know, it's, it's, if you're going to heal somebody, like, this is not what you would expect to see, and so what is, what is going on here? Well, we, we really have two options for understanding Uh, what's going on here. And I think they work well together. Remember that I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, the importance of polemical theology, right? Taking, taking pagan Canaanite practices, subverting them, using them to proclaim God's message and God's uh, truth. I think something very similar is going on here. Most scholars believe that what Elijah uh, is doing by stretching himself out of the boy, this would not be that uh, uncommon or strange uh, to the Israelites who would have first heard this account. They, they would have actually understood quite well what was going on because this kind of ritual was actually common practice in, uh, in pagan necromancy. It was believed that a, a holy man, or maybe we would say a witch doctor, right, could essentially act as a conduit of life, that life could pass through him to restore life to one who is dead. Now you're probably thinking, Oh boy, Nathan, where are you going with this? Are you telling me that Elijah here is participating in some sort of pagan uh, necromantic ritual? And uh, my response to you would be, uh, yes, potentially. Here's why. Because what the Lord is doing is he's taking the tools of the enemy, which are useless and worthless and mean nothing. Idols mean nothing. But he's taking those tools and the understanding of Right, the, the, the Baal worship, and he's subverting it. He's taking the enemy's tools to use them against them. He's saying, you think your pagan rituals give you life? They give you nothing. But guess what? I'm going to take your tools and your way of doing things, and I'm going to subvert them and show, no, Baal is not the Lord of life. Yahweh is the Lord of life. The Lord intends to demonstrate Baal has no power here. 
He alone can provide life from death. This is really meant to shame and to mock those who would practice this. In reality, this idea of taking pagan concepts and subverting them is something that Christians have done uh, throughout the ages. Uh, right? uh, and, and listen, I say this as an aside. This is my conviction. I think it's a Romans 13 issue. But this is why I have no problem with Christians taking things like uh, uh, Christmas, which today there's a lot of uproar about saying that it's a formerly pagan holiday. It has, it has pagan origins, sure. But I have no problem with and I applaud Christians who take these pagan things and absolutely subvert them. And rid them of their paganism. Because I see something going on here. Again, I'm not binding your conscience. That's my conviction. But we even see this in something like hymn writing. Okay, this morning we studied uh, Joaquim Neander, who, who, who wrote the song Praise to the Lord the Almighty. That tune is a local German folk tune. I wouldn't be surprised if they were singing it in the pub down the street. Right? Martin Luther is said to have, as you brought up this morning, Jack, said to have adopted local tunes that they were singing at the bar, taken those tunes and set them to rich theological hymns. Right? Why should the pagans have all the fun? This is, this is subversion. This is polemical. It's taking the enemy's tools and actually showing that, that they mean nothing. That the Lord is superior. The second option that's also possible in this is what the author is doing here is is he's using an incredible play on words because the word stretched out upon can also mean breathed upon. So it could be that Elijah actually didn't stretch out on him. It could be that he breathed upon him. But that word, because it's a word play, involves that polemical theology, but also importantly shows that the breath of life is given only by the Lord. He gives and he takes away. The Lord is the author, provider, and giver of life. We know Elijah is not participating in a pagan ritual. Why? Because he cries out to the Lord in prayer. And so here we get this beautiful and climactic moment. Elijah prays, and the text tells us this. This is so wonderful. Elijah prays, and the Lord hears. He hears his voice. The Lord hears our cries. Hear that this morning. The Lord is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. Call out to Him. Cry out to Him. When you inevitably find yourself in the midst of difficult circumstances again. The Lord hears, and you notice immediately the boy comes alive. Life is restored by the power of God. Now, this is a special moment in the narrative because you and I are, are, are privy to what's happening upstairs. But, get, but, but the widow is still downstairs in her grief. We know as we read the narrative, the boy's life has been restored. We're already praising God before Elijah even gets down the stairs. But the widow is here waiting. And so the tension of the narrative is now moving to this moment where finally, as Elijah comes down the stairs with the boy alive in his arms, he's going to hand that boy back to his mother And can you imagine the joy of receiving your child back from the dead? Can you imagine the look on her face when Elijah comes down the stairs with the boy in his arms, once dead, now alive? Praise God. That is the joy of resurrection. 
That is the joy of new life. That is the joy of salvation. That is the joy that you ought to feel every Easter Sunday when we're singing together. Christ the Lord is risen today. This is the joy of new life that is provided by the hand of God. This is the resounding joy of the defeat of death. Death has no power. Death has lost its sting because God himself has given life. God is the author of life. He not only raises those who have died physically as he promises to do, but he gives new life to those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins like you and I. He makes dead bones to live, the scriptures say. He makes stone hearts to come alive. He imparts life by the power of the word of his mouth, the spirit going out through the preaching of the word to claim souls for Jesus. Here, Christian, is your hope in life and in death. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life so that whosoever believeth in him, though they die, yet shall they live. You in Christ gain an everlasting life that no sorrow from this earth can touch. He is, even now, believer, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that when we join together in the realms of heaven to praise our God for all eternity, there will not be a single tear on our eyes. There will be no grief in our heart because death is defeated. The king has conquered. The king has won. Christ has the victory. Death is defeated. The emphatic message of this passage is one that leads us as we follow redemptive history to the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Because it is by Christ, by faith in him, that new life is granted and death is defeated. Do you realize that death would come again for this boy in a physical sense? Do you realize that Elijah, through the power of God, has healed the boy, but the boy will die again because death comes. It has been prolonged here, but death will come again for this boy. He would grow up and grow old, we hope, but death would come just as it would come for the widow. But now, by faith in a God who provides life, now the widow, though she die, yet shall she live. Though this boy will die eventually as a man, yet shall he live. Earthly death is not the end. Hear those powerful words again. What does Elijah say? See your son lives. And hear this. Because Christ lives, so shall you. Has God not proved his namesake? He is the Lord of life and truth. And if he can save even the most obscure pagan widow on the fringes of society, what can he do in the hearts and minds of those that we love? Are you praying for them? Do you believe that the gospel is still at work in the world? Ask the men at the anchorage. Do you believe that God has the power to save even the most stone-hearted person, perhaps a person in your family? Is God the author of life? Is he the one who imparts by the word of his mouth new life to souls that are dead? This text ought to make you say yes and amen. The gospel is still at work. 
behind enemy lines, in the most obscure places where you think there's no way that person can be saved, God's power extends there. Baal, Satan, the power of this world, has no power when it comes to God. My question for you is, do you believe that? And are you praying for souls to be saved by the word and power of God? Are you pleading like Elijah? That life would come again into those that we love. Jesus has promised that he is the resurrection and the life. That all who receive him by faith, though they die, yet shall they live. Do you believe this? Then live like it. Trust in the word of God, which saves by the power of God, so that we may praise the love of God and live for the glory of God. Let's pray. What a story. What glory, what love displayed on these pages before us, Lord. We praise you and thank you that you are the author of life, that you are the giver and provider of life, that you make what is dead to rise again. We praise you, Lord, for our hope in Christ Jesus, who forever defeated the power of death, that we shall not die, but we shall live. Fill our hearts and minds with that hope this morning, such that our lives would display it, our prayers would speak it. You are, Christ, our hope in life and in death. May we sing it until the end of the ages and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.